You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Today we are talking with Alicia Malone about her new book, The Female Gaze. If you haven't heard about this book, well, you're about to, if you listen to this episode, you know, that's why we're here. We are talking about The Female Gaze, which is now available at finer bookstores and also available on Amazon as well. So be sure to check that out, listen to the interview, and enjoy. Alicia Malone, what was your inspiration to write The Female Gaze? Well, a couple of things. I mean, the main thing was that after I wrote my first book called Backwards and in Heels, which was about the history of women in Hollywood, I kept getting asked the same question, which was, so how do we support women in film? How do everyday people, audience members, how do we send a message to Hollywood that we want to see more women behind the scenes, in front of the camera, behind the camera? And so I decided to create a a list, a a simple guidebook to some of my favorite movies made by women. At first, I thought I was going to write about, you know, movies directed by women, movies written by women, uh, cinematography, costumes, production design, editing. But in the end, because I didn't have a whole lot of time, I decided to focus specifically on movies directed by women. But this time around, I wanted to expand it from Hollywood and look at movies from all different eras and all different countries. But another inspiration was just the fact that when you look at these film canons and the lists that are often a place that people start when they want to get into classic films or want to watch the best films of all time, like the AFI Top 100 list, most of those lists, including AFI, have no female directors on them. And I think that leads to the erasure of film directors. It leads to the bias around female film directors, that they're not as good as their male counterparts. That's just not true. So I wanted to do something to change that and I'm very grateful that I have people who follow me online and and want to know my recommendations on film, often watch what I recommend to them. So here are 52 movies that I love made by women. So how did you go about creating and curating this list? It was so difficult. I started out just writing down all my favorite films made by women And I ended up with a list of over a 100. I think it was like 120 something. And I realized I didn't have a whole lot of time to write this book. I did it within a couple of months. So I had to be very specific about what I wanted to cover. So then I started to give myself some parameters so that I was able to cut down the list. And one of my biggest things was looking at what is available to watch. And, of course, I could only judge what's available in the U.S. and not other countries because it's hard to know what films play where in other countries. But I basically looked at films that were available and accessible, whether it be on YouTube, on Amazon or iTunes. Unfortunately, when I wrote the book, Filmstruck was still in existence. So a lot of the films are available in Filmstruck and might be a little while before the Criterion channel comes next year before you can find them again. But uh, that was one way of cutting down my list. And then another way I thought I would just focus on narrative films and not animated movies or documentaries. So that helped to cut it down more. And then I just tried to look at a variety of different backgrounds for the female directors, different countries that they were from to try to get a variety of different perspectives in the book. So I ended up with a list of 30, and it was really tough to get it down to that. And then from there, I wanted to open it up to other female film critics so that the book wasn't just 
in my voice and I didn't put any restrictions on what they wanted to talk about apart from, again, just making sure it's available somewhere to watch. So there are some double-ups in the book, uh, but I always think that's interesting because you get a, two different perspectives on the same movie. And I also opened it up to aspiring female film critics in the hopes that if they get a byline in my book that they might then be able to use that for future portfolio and then get more in, more women into this industry. Well, you've made mention a couple times now that you didn't have a lot of time to put this book together. One, I want to know why. And two, I just wanted to tell you that it doesn't feel like you didn't have enough time. It doesn't feel like this was just thrown together. It feels very well curated. And the amount of research that went into it by you, by your fellow critics, just is shines through so well. Oh, thank you so much. That's great to hear because that was one of the things I really wanted to make sure I had this time around. When I wrote my first book, you know, it was my first ever book. I didn't quite understand how the publishing process worked. So once I got my book deal, they said, okay, it's going to come out, you know, in, in almost a year's time. And I thought that's plenty of time. And then you realize, oh, well, you have to have it to the printers by this date and then you have to have it the layout. So you start back timing all of that and it ends up being only a couple of months. So I bit off more than I could chew with my first book. I'm still proud of what I did, but I tried to look at the whole history of cinema and that was difficult. So this time around, I wanted to make sure that I could do it in the, in the time given and make sure it didn't feel rushed, make sure I had enough time to do the research and to watch the films and really dive in. And that was, you know, from learning so much the first time around but the reason why I didn't have that many months to do it was because my publisher came back to me and said you know your first book did pretty well would you be interested in writing another one we are going to put out some books in fall um, and so it would come out in November and this was I think it was towards the start of this year and I had told all my friends, like, I'm not going to write another book for a while. The first one was really hard. But, of course, once that carrot was dangled in front of me, I thought, ah, oh, this is such a good opportunity. I can't, I can't waste this opportunity. So I went back to the publisher and said, well, I do have a lot of people ask me about what to watch made by women. So how about I do a guidebook? And they said, yes, that's great. You've got, you know, four months to do it. So then I had to really crack down and do it. It, um, you know, the publishing world, sometimes you get a long time to write, but sometimes you have a short window. And how did you go about contacting and, and getting all of the other writers to be involved in this? Well, most of them I know from working in the industry for so many years. I've met them throughout my career. Um, some are in LA with me, some are in New York, and we're our paths across throughout film festivals. Some I just admire their writing. You know, I'm someone who reads a volume of film reviews uh, after I see a movie. I love to hear what people think of it. And I love reading different reviews by different women and try to share their work because you do get a different perspective when it's written by a woman and uh, different types of backgrounds too. So most of them I knew and I reached out to them and I uh, was so amazed and <laughs> honored that Every single one of them said, yes, I would love to do it because I know both, most of them are really busy. They've got other work and they're busy hustling and trying to get other jobs. So I was really proud of that. And then for the aspiring female film critics, I put out a Google Doc uh, just with a form to fill out and with a submission. And I said, you know, you're going to have to do it on spec. I made sure I paid all the contributors out of my own pocket because I wanted to make sure that, you know, women get paid for their work. But I said, you know, if you haven't been published before, then obviously you'll have to write something on spec so I can see your writing. And I thought I would get about, you know, 20 entries and I got 300 and something. <laughs> 
So I knew I only had the funds to pay for five. So then I had to go through all those reviews and made sure that I spent lots of time reading each and every one of them, giving them all a proper chance. And I still hope that there's somewhere I can place the the ones that I couldn't put in the book because there was so much great writing out there and great, um, you know, women writing about film that need more opportunities and need more light shine on them. I needed this book like I need a hole in the head because <laughs> now my watch list has just ballooned even more than it already is. There are so many great titles that are covered and so many stories about so many filmmakers that I really wasn't even aware of. So it was wonderful to be able to read these and say, okay, now I need to see this movie. Now I need to see that movie. The one that I had seen and had been around you know, I've, I've seen it on the video shelf, is uh, Seven Beauties. I never knew what Seven Beauties was about. Now reading that, I was just like, oh my God, this sounds like this movie was made for me. I know, there's so many films, and, and that's what I've been getting already. It's people saying, great, now I've got even more to watch. And, and I'm really hoping that this can be a coffee table book so people can just have it handy if you're thinking about something, you want to watch something different. But there's really interesting stories in there, a lot of interesting backstories on how the film was made and and also stories about the women who made the films and, and also the context in which they made the films. Seven Beauties is a really interesting one because it's a very divisive film. It's a black comedy about the war, about the Holocaust, and it's directed by a woman. It was also the first female director, Lena Vertmuller, to get a, an Oscar nomination. And that's also pretty rare for a foreign film director to get a Best Director nomination, let alone a woman. So there's so much interesting things going on with each and every one of the films. And even just looking at the selection, I think just overall tells the story about women in Hollywood. You have a couple of films from the very early era of cinema and then you have big gaps and then when it gets to the 1990s <laughs> then there's an explosion because that's when independent cinema started to come around and it made it was easier for women to make films and you started to see many many more films by women yeah those gaps were very concerning just seeing those time spans i'm like i'm sure that it's not for lack of research and lack <laughs> lack of coverage it's just for lack of actual female film directors exactly i mean there would be a couple in there that i could have placed for the gaps but they definitely tells the story of from the mid 1920s till you know the 1970s or even to the 90s there was a real real lack of female directors getting opportunities though it was nice to see some of the female directors that i wasn't aware of from the silent era and even into the 20s and 30s that i just completely had never heard of so it was so nice to to read about these people yeah, and I think it's really surprising because when you look at the films that women made before the money came into Hollywood in the mid-1920s, before talkies came in and studios started being formed, you get these really fascinating films, like the very first one that I talk about in the book called The Consequences of Feminism, which is from 1906, directed by Alice Guy Blachey, who was not only one of the first filmmakers in the world, but the, she was the first female filmmaker in the world. And she made these really interesting little comedies. And this one is a gender role reversal comedy. You can see it on YouTube. It's a short film. And it's so shocking that this was made back in 1906, a time when you think, you know, women, I mean, they obviously didn't have meant much rights when it came to society, but they were making these really creative films. Women also made action films and westerns and comedies and all these different types of movies. They were acting, producing, writing, directing 
And then suddenly the money came in and the women were pushed out. Looking at such a wide array of women across so many different countries over such a long period of time, over 100 years, were there any patterns that emerged or was it just what the era and the the culture that they came from kind of uh, predicted that they would uh, talk about? When I sat down to think about the the title of the book and and what I would use as sort of my window into looking at these films, I was thinking about the term the male gaze, which was coined in the 1970s by film theorist Laura Mulvey, and to talk about the way women are viewed in cinema when men are behind the lens and the audience is forced to kind of look at women through a male lens. And I thought, is there an equivalent female gaze? And I don't think there really is because that's not the way society is set up. You know, the male gaze is a product of society. But it's interesting to see uh, such a wealth of stories. But one thing that I notice is that they're all very different from each other. But I notice that there's a lot of movies about women. Women often tell stories about women. They're not necessarily autobiographical, but they're about women that feel real and relatable. I notice that women are really good revealing small moments between women, female friendships on screen, love scenes are very, very different. Sex scenes are very different with a female behind the lens. It's often about what's going on inside a woman's head during those moments. And you also notice that not only is Uh, the type of stories being told differently, but the way they're being told is different as well. There's a lot of experimentation. And I guess some of that comes from the fact that some of these movies had to be very low budget because they were put together very independently and, and it was hard for women to even get to make these movies in those countries. So you do see a lot of real experimental works being, being done. And and that's really exciting. So what were some of the biggest surprises for you as you were putting this together? It was so surprising how I felt, I think, watching all these films. I mean, most of them I'd seen before. Some I hadn't seen for a long time. Some I was seeing for the first time. But what was really surprising was watching a volume of movies directed by women and feeling a change in myself. You know, I have to kind of reconcile my love of cinema with what it's done to my own self-esteem, having to watch so many stories about women you know, being abused or being side characters or just being treated like sexual objects and having this kind of beautiful ideal of a woman in in every single film, it makes you compare yourself. So getting to see a wealth of female characters on screen, all different shapes, all different sizes, going through all these complex emotions, it made me feel better about myself, which was something I didn't expect at all. It gave me such a dose of inspiration. And it also just proved to me, well, firstly, I think, It makes you sad because you think what we've lost by not allowing women as many opportunities as their male counterparts to make movies. We've lost this wealth of stories. But it also reminds me of just how many great stories are out there, how many talented women are out there, and how women can do any type of genre. They can do horror. They can do action. Anything you throw at them, they they can obviously do just as well as as men. Were there... Many or any women that had to hide behind male identities in order to get their movies made? Well, there were women who had to hide just in general from making their movies. So there one in my book, which is called Wajida. 
from uh, 2012. It's from Saudi Arabia. And it's really interesting because the female filmmaker behind the film is Haifa Al-Mansour. She was the first female filmmaker to make a movie within the Saudi Arabia kingdom. And it was actually the first film shot entirely within the kingdom. And so in order to make the film in a country where women aren't allowed to be equals with men, that they can't speak to men as the, as counterparts or in a position of authority, definitely not. She had to hide in a production van and talk on walkie-talkies uh, because she was worried about the reaction from the streets and the crowd. And so to see this kind of struggles that women, women had to go through just to get these films made, even as recently as something like 2012. I mean, it's it's really inspiring and it makes you think about um, just how much struggle and blood, sweat and tears are, are put into these works of art. I was so glad to see that you covered Daisies. I mean, that's one of my favorite films of all times. And just that there was such a, a strong voice from the Czech New Wave but it was only one voice, but it came across so strong just having this one lone female filmmaker amongst that group of boys. But I'm so glad that her work continues and lives on and is, is so lauded today. Yeah, me too. I mean, Daisy's Vera Hitilova, she was the only woman working during the Czech New Wave. And she had a lot writing against her. I mean, even within the country at the time, I mean, she didn't necessarily call herself a feminist because there was so much else happening in the country that were, was a bigger concern. Uh, but that film is so experimental. It's a movie you can't place in a box. It's so much fun to watch. It caused a huge uproar, ironically, for a food fight scene because of food wastage. <laughs> it got banned or supposedly because of that. But she was such a, a pioneer and a leader. And then you look at someone like Agnes Varda, who was the only woman working during the French New Wave. And many historians say her film, The Point Court, was the first film in the French New Wave. And a lot of people, you know, give that to uh, The 400 Blows, which came five years after her first film. So you see these women that were purely working by themselves and really breaking new ground and paving the way for all the female filmmakers we see today. The most depressing thing writing this book, though, was just writing the same sentence over and over again, which is, you know, despite critical acclaim and commercial success, insert female filmmaker name, struggled for years to get another film made, you know, and you think, why, why did that have to happen? Right. Why did it have to happen? I think it goes back to a lot of the, the bias around who makes a movie, what a film director looks like, and that's what I'm trying to change with this book because a film director can look like many different things. It doesn't have to just look like, you know, a man in a, in a baseball cap. <laughs> so I want to ask you where the tipping point is for female uh, directors kind of being accepted and, and having a, a, a place on the playing field, but I don't know if that has actually happened yet or not. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I noticed from writing my first book when I stepped back and looked at the history of women in Hollywood as, as a whole. You noticed all these peaks and troughs and it, these peaks where it looked like things might change and then it would go, it would just go back to the status quo. And so it was quite depressing when you look at that, at those waves. It's something that I hope is starting to change. I mean, when you look at female gaze and all the 
the movies I chose, you can definitely see that from the 90s on, that's where you get the first female filmmaker of colour. That's where you get the first queer female filmmaker of colour. You start to get more people let into the industry because of the rise in independent cinema. But I think it still remains tough today. I mean, the statistics are still the same, that out of the highest 100 grossing films each year, 4% are directed by women and 96% are directed by men. The one thing that has changed now is the level of conversation. And I don't notice that even with my previous book, you know, it came out last year in August and it was hard to get people interested to talk about the, this topic. But come October, when you started to see the Me Too movement rise, that's where people started to realize that this was a conversation we needed to have happen. And I, I, I'm really optimistic for the future. I think that people know things need to change now. It's, they don't really know how that's going to happen, whether it's in inclusion writers or quotas or something else, but I think it can't go back to the way it was now. Yeah, it's hard to believe that Me Too was just a little over a year ago now. I know. So much has changed. I know. It's amazing. It's amazing to see the things that have changed and, and even things that haven't changed. This, the way people are talking is very different now. It's exciting. Yeah, it feels like we still have so long to go. Yes. <laughs> so the book came out when? Like just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, November 15. So not long ago at all. So I'm not even going to ask you what the reaction's been because it's only been a fortnight since it's been out on the street. Exactly. I've just started to see a couple of posts here and there on Instagram and Twitter where people are starting to get their books. Many people pre-ordered them and then it takes time to get there. I just sent out a bunch to people, some signed copies. So I'm really hopeful that it's well received when it finally gets to everyone. So last time we spoke, you had no idea what was going to happen with Filmstruck. At least I don't imagine <laughs> yeah. you did. No, I didn't. You were kind of the face of Filmstruck for me. So what's happening now for you? Yeah, I mean, that was a real shock. I mean, no one knew that Filmstruck was going to come to an end and so rapidly as well. I mean, I always felt like it was too good to be true, but <laughs> I was hoping that it would continue. And I knew that it was beloved by a smaller group, yes, than something like Netflix, but definitely a very passionate group of people. And so I got the call the night before the news hit and I surprised myself with being quite emotional about it. I was crying. I couldn't believe that it was over. And it wasn't because I was losing a job. It just felt like we're losing something really vital and important that made me think about this industry as a whole and the way we're going with streaming services. When you have something like Netflix, which is great on one hand because they are giving money to filmmakers like Alfonso Cuaron to make a really personal movie like Roma. But on the other hand, often these films are buried and it's down to the algorithm. And I know for me, I watched The Great British Bake Off and now I all, all I get is cooking shows being offered to me and not movies like the Orson Welles movie. I'm the perfect person for that. So it made me think about that as a whole. And then to see the reaction from people has been amazing. To see the reaction from all the filmmakers were incredible. And that led to the Criterion channel coming back which is really exciting, and I'm so happy for my friends at Criterion and that, and that the films will be accessible in general because that was the biggest worry is what happens when these films aren't available to watch. Uh, but as for me, I don't know. I mean, Filmstrike wraps up this week, and I'm finished with that. I'm still on Turner Classic Movies, which is my dream job, and I still get to do that. 
twice a week introduce all the classic films. But I'm going to really miss working for Filmstruck and doing the Filmstruck podcast. As you know, podcasting is so much fun. So I'm sure something else will be there for me in the future. I'm going to just relax over the holidays and then get back to it in January. <laughs> well, I know what a huge money-making venture uh, writing is, so I'm sure that you'll just be able to <laughs> sit on a mountain oh, yeah. of royalties. <laughs> That's right. My 30 cents a book or whatever I get, you know, <laughs> I don't think I'll make back the money that I spent on making the book, but the bigger issue, I mean, the bigger cause, of course, is just to get people to see these movies. And, and it always opens up doors and it allows for me to talk about the films and things that I love. So I'm grateful for that. So I know you had to pay the writers. Did you have to actually order the DVDs and those things, too? Yes, order all the DVDs and watch everything on Amazon. And then I also um, got I also hired the TCM fact checker to go through my book to help me to make sure that all my facts were correct. So, yeah, I, I'll definitely end up out of pocket. But luckily, I paid for all that while I was still making, you know, more money. <laughs> so, I'm all good. so is the best place for people to keep up with you still your website, AliciaMalone.com? Yeah, AliciaMalone.com. Or if you're on social media, then I'm at AliciaMalone on Twitter and Instagram. Facebook, I'm not very good at, so don't follow me there because I hardly ever update that. <laughs> Well, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and support my book. It's so nice to talk to you again.
sta zitto in pizzeria Lola, in via Chiatamone, è sempre là, che piange e che ride anche per te, guardarsi intorno e non capire. canzone sta per finire this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.